from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst. I'm a cell on the intersection of Web3 and carbon markets. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I got we got to do a whole episode on this yeah. at another time. Yeah, you do. Oh, my goodness. It takes nerves of steel to trade in today's actual market. But not so if you're trading in Catalyst's imaginary market for climate tech futures. This is Buy, Sell, Hold. The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals, with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a frontier forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, costs, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes, or go to latitudemedia.com events. I'm Shail Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So I'm a betting man by nature, but I'm on the sidelines these days in the stock market. Things are just a little too hairy for me at the moment. So I need another way to quench my gambling thirst. And what better way than to make some imaginary bets that are virtually impossible to adjudicate? The hype cycle has been working overtime in climate tech the past couple of years. So let's check in on which areas, sectors, technologies we think are overhyped, worth the squeeze, or need more love. We're going to play a game of buy, sell, hold. And with me are two friends who should be familiar to this audience. First is Lara Pierpoint of Actuate, a nonprofit that is focused on accelerating climate solutions. Uh, you may also have heard her as the guest host of this show back when I was on paternity leave earlier this year. And second is Stephen Lacey, who's the host of Carbon Copy, another podcast partnership between Canary Media and Postscript Media, and the executive editor of this show. So let's get into it. Laura, welcome. Thanks, Shale. It's great to be back with you here. It's nice to have you back and to actually be recording together instead of yeah. me just listening to you while I'm in a fugue state of parental bliss, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Uh, Steven? I'm, I'm still holding on to my AMC stock and my GameStop stock. Oh, Can yeah? You're a meme that? lord? <laughs> <laughs> You're deep in the Reddit, like uh, Wall Street Bets channel? That's, that's, uh, that's how I got all my ideas for this episode. Yeah, that, I bet there's some. There, there probably. I actually haven't been in there, but I bet there was some like periods when some of those spacs, some of the EV spacs, were probably pretty hot in in Wall Street bets. I suspect probably not so any longer. Anyway, well, I actually uh, think Tesla. Tesla w was kind of a piece of that. I mean, the Tesla's rise during the pandemic had a lot to do with the Reddit community and a lot of those new armchair investors. Yeah, that's true. I also think, I do think a couple of the specs, like Lucid, I think, was one of the ones that they glommed onto. And at some point, Lucid went up to, you know, every spec IPO is at $10 and it went up to like 40 or 50, something like that. Well, and we're uh, going to anyway. start the next one today, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, we're, we're going to stay well away from actual public market equities. Um, 
But here's what we're going to do. So the game is buy, sell, hold. Let's talk a little bit about what that's going to mean. So each of us has come equipped with one technology or thing that we want to buy, one thing we want to hold, and one thing we want to sell. Now, I think it's important that we uh, clarify what we are actually betting on here. So this is not like the success or failure of one of these technologies directly. What we're trying to do is say whether something is basically overhyped, underhyped, or hyped just right in a Goldilocks sense. So we're we're saying buying against the current level of hype, which is admittedly subjective and we can discuss for any given topic, uh, as opposed to sort of overall likelihood of success of a given technology. Make sense to you guys? Yep. Yeah. I'm in. Okay. Uh, so we'll start with all of our buys and then we will... Well, we're going to start positive here, and then we're going to become increasingly negative as time goes on. So we'll start with buys, then we'll do holds, and then we will do sells. So let's start with a buy. Uh, Lara, I'm going to go to you first. My buy is advanced nuclear. And I want to take a step back before I explain why and say that there are people who will look at my background and say, oh, obviously, she's got a nuclear background. She's all for advanced nuclear. But I just want to preface this by saying I'm actually known for giving a lot of tough love to this industry. And in fact, in graduate school, a bunch of my friends used to say I was the least pro-nuclear nuclear engineer they'd ever met in their lives. Um, So... I'm not just a nuclear shell, but I'm actually getting really excited about this arena for a couple of reasons. So when you think about troughs of disillusionment, the nuclear world in general, I think, has been in one roughly since the mid-1980s. But what's interesting is that while nuclear in general has sort of been in these doldrums, advanced nuclear has kind of had its own little sort of hype cycle set of transitions. And right now, I think it's at a really, really interesting position where the companies that are left as a result of some of the kind of rise of companies and a lot of excitement in the mid-2000s and then some things falling apart, the folks who are out there right now, they're really serious They really understand markets and business models, and they're really starting to garner the kind of government support they really need to move forward. So we're seeing things like the Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program from the federal government, which is exactly what these companies need to really start growing and getting where they need to be on this roadmap. You're seeing a lot of really positive engagement with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And then really interestingly, some of the conditions that we've been mentioning or that we're going to be talking about throughout the show today around the economy and some of the challenges around the world, I think are actually making the conditions even a little bit better for nuclear. So Europe is the classic example here where having a source of carbon-free electricity that you can put anywhere is actually something that's starting to look even more attractive. And then finally, you know, we're actually seeing some real differences in public opinion. So if you look at California, which historically has been one of the most anti-nuclear bastions in the world, um, we're starting to see some change in public opinion, specifically around Diablo Canyon, which is the last nuclear plant. And so for the first time in decades, you actually see more people wanting to keep the Diablo Canyon plant open than wanting to close it. Um, So if California is starting to change, and if the governor of California is starting to consider keeping a nuclear plant open, this might be a really different sort of phase that nuclear is about to get into here. All right, Stephen, thoughts, buy, sell, or hold on advanced nuclear? I'm going to hold advanced nuclear. Um, I feel like the public perception and acceptance of nuclear is clearly in favor of the technology, both conventional nuclear and uh, next generation nuclear. It feels to me, though, that the technology cycles are still quite long. And as a 
real meaningful decarbonization solution, it's still a ways out. But uh, definitely think that there's a lot of momentum and definitely feel like public perception is shifting. So I am a hold. That's fair enough. Definitely got to have a strong stomach for this one. I agree. I also am a hold. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of super interesting stuff going on in advanced nuclear, but I would separate, first of all, I do think public perception is changing pretty quickly around the extension of life of operating nuclear, which is your example of Diablo Canyon in California. Like you could see that. I think people have woken up to how crazy it is for us to do early retirement of operating nuclear and how every time we do that, we replace it with fossil fuels, at least partially today. So I'm I'm totally bought in on that. I don't see public perception changing all that quickly on new build nuclear yet. Second of all, I guess I'm curious, you're more expert in this than me, but you said a lot of positive engagement with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Um, what do you make of the NRC rejected Oklo, which is one of these like next-gen uh, nuclear companies that I think was viewed as sort of a forerunner for maybe getting one of the first SMRs built? They rejected their petition like out straight up out of hand uh, earlier this year. Is that a significant indicator of NRC engagement or was it kind of a one-off thing? I mean, what I, we talked about this a little bit on my nuclear episode um, with Jacob Oklo, but you know, I think, I think that actually what that was, um, was in some ways, this is going to sound kind of crazy. I wouldn't call it necessarily a good thing, but I think part of what you're seeing is that there's actually like a real positive tension right now between companies and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. They're really deeply engaged. They're really trying to figure out how to move forward. Um, and there are fits and starts, and that was a fit. But that part of what that is is kind of a symptom of the fact that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission realizes it needs to get this right. The companies realize they need to be in front of the NRC as early and as often as possible. Um, and there are a lot of things that are happening behind the scenes that don't make headlines that sound like that. So a lot of engagement with some of the you know NGOs and the folks out there who are really trying to make sure that the rules are in place to move these things forward. So basically, my response to that is not quite as bad as it sounds. All right. Laura's a buy. Stephen and I are holds. Stephen, your turn to get into the hot seat. What is your buy? I am buying heat pumps. Now, I know what you're thinking, heat pumps. Everybody's talking about heat pumps. There's already a lot of hype around this particular technology. So why do you think that there's a lot more upside potential to, to heat pumps, given the amount of attention already on this space? I have many reasons, but I'll point to a couple. One is, I think, just pure user experience. So uh, having moved into a new home with a uh, central gas uh, steam system the, and, and some heat pumps, some, some mini splits, the gas steam system is terrible. I hate it. Uh, and we've used the mini splits to heat certain rooms. And the experience of the mini split is so good. In, during We had an extremely cold winter. And it was so quiet. And it was heating the room so perfectly, even at sub-zero temperatures. And there's this perception. There has been this perception. At, and in the past, rightly so, that heat pumps are not sufficient to uh, in really cold temperatures. And the technology has gotten a lot better. And uh, I am a, a, a use case that I can tell you that these heat pumps now today 
work exceptionally well in very cold temperatures. So I think the user experience is getting better. And at the same time, there's a very clear economic case for expanding heat pump production. So um, we sell 4 million heat pumps a year in this country, and we sell 6 million residential air conditioning units. And according to an analysis from Alexander Gard Murray, who's a political economist, and um, Nate Adams, who is a uh, home comfort professional energy efficiency expert, if you just work with manufacturers uh, to encourage them to switch those AC units into hybrid uh, heating and cooling units, it would cost them about $300 to do that. And we could be sell using all of those residential systems. People could get their cooling systems. And for just a, a few hundred dollars more, all the AC units in this country could be hybrid units. So I think there's a lot of upside potential to deploying heat pumps, um, a lot more heat pumps than we do today. And of course, as you've discussed on this show and we've discussed over the years, uh, electrification is the backbone of decarbonization and heat pumps are a major piece of that electrification strategy. So I'm a buy on heat pumps. All right. So you're you're a buy despite it admitting that heat pumps are fairly hyped. I would say hyped within the like nerdy energy person community, but that's the community that we all inhabit. So we'll count it anyway. Yeah, I think they're not hyped out like outside of energy circles. A lot of people still don't know about them. And the people who do uh, hear confusing language from their contractors. They say they're too expensive or they're too costly to maintain. And there's still a lot of friction in the contractor process. So people have insufficient information. And a lot of people hear that they're not as good at heating uh, as you know conventional furnaces. And that is not true. And I can tell you by experience that it is not true. All right, Lara, buy, sell, hold on heat pumps. Well, first and foremost, I'm quite literally a buy in the sense that I also just moved into a new home and in, in the process of converting our natural gas system over to a heat pump. So, so I'll say that much. I think I think overall, I agree pretty much. I'm somewhere probably between a hold and a buy. I think um I think it's true that it's fairly it's fairly well hyped. I agree much more so in energy nerd circles than outside them. Um, but this is definitely an active conversation in California, particularly around policy. Um, but there is one challenge. I haven't actually run the numbers yet for our system. I'm supposed to get an estimate just this week. Um, but what I'm hearing a lot of times from my friends is that natural gas is so cheap here in California that it actually doesn't necessarily always pencil out, which is kind of a bummer. So um, so I think there are a few headwinds there. But I will say one other thing, which is that heat pumps aren't just for residential electrification. There's some really interesting applications in industrial contexts and things like that. And I don't think we're talking nearly enough about those. So if you incorporate kind of all of those other potential use cases, then I'd be a pretty solid buy also. That was actually going to be my reaction too, which is I think heat pumps for residential, it's hard to sell. Like I'm, I'm bullish on them, but also they're getting a lot of attention and hype. So I'm, I don't know, somewhere between a hold and the buy, but uh, exactly what Laura said, no one's talking about heat pumps for industrial applications. There's some really cool activity going on there. More on that relatively soon. Um, but there I'm definitely a buy relative to the level of lack of hype, I would say. 
Yeah, I saw in the Twitter thread when we put out the call for subjects, there were some people who mentioned that as well. I would be remiss if I didn't talk about a couple news hooks here. Actually, the the Biden administration just announced that they're going to use the Defense Production Act to encourage production of heat pumps for residential and commercial applications. And there was a bill introduced in the Senate that would encourage manufacturers to switch from uh, AC-only units to hybrid units. And, And that was partially informed by the work of Alexander and Nate, who I referenced earlier. So there's some interesting policy momentum as well. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely going to be tailwinds for heat pumps in the U.S. for sure, but in Europe even more so, I think, for the the next few years. All right, so we're all pretty bullish on heat pumps. Um, My turn for my buy, I was trying to think of something that's sort of non-obvious. So my buy relative to the current level of hype is non-lithium ion battery chemistries for stationary energy storage. So the case here is basically... So my assumption has been for years that if there is an application that lithium ion is well suited toward, it is probably going to win in that application. I saw, you know, a a relatively similar similar story play out in solar with uh, crystalline silicon photovoltaics, which is like there are other technologies that look better on paper, theoretically could have higher efficiency or lower cost. But once the high volume, low cost manufacturing machine really kicked in and we just started scaling production of the incumbent technology, which in that case was crystalline silicon PV, it was just impossible for anything to compete with it. And I've always generally believed the same thing would be true in batteries, certainly for EVs, but also for grid-scale storage, which is if lithium-ion can do it, because there's going to be this massive supply chain and huge volume of production, costs are going to continue to decline. In fact, in the stationary storage context, costs will be will benefit from the decline of EV battery focus and R&D, that just nothing will compete unless it is playing a game lithium-ion is never suited to play. So that has led me down the like, well, the only battery chemistries that are interesting outside of lithium-ion are the ones that can deliver hundreds of hours of energy storage, for example. But we're in an interesting time right now where it turns out that when you have you know, rise in commodity prices, which we have for lithium-ion batteries right now, lithium itself, but also cathode battery materials, in combination with a global supply chain crunch, you end up with uh, the the and in addition to that, the fact that battery OEMs, all things equal, will pick EVs over uh, stationary storage because they're going to sell way more batteries into electric vehicles than they are into the grid. So if they have to pick and choose, and they're limited in supply. Uh, stationary storage is going to lose. So all those things happening right now has led to a moment in time, which may last a little while, wherein it's actually quite a crunch if you're trying to buy lithium-ion batteries for the grid. And we've seen a bunch of examples of this playing out, like publicly, prices are getting rebid, like substantially higher, projects are getting delayed, all this kind of stuff. And I think this is creating an opening for a bunch of alternative chemistries, flow batteries, sodium batteries, zinc-based batteries, metal air batteries, a bunch of other technologies that that do look really interesting on paper and have specs that lithium-ion won't necessarily be able to meet that may actually have a window now because there's so much desperation for supply that a few of these may actually squeak through despite the fact that lithium-ion has this like massive scale-up behind it. So I'm I'm buying a suite of non-lithium-ion battery technologies. Lara, I want your reaction. 
Man, I love it. Those are those are some fascinating arguments, and I was following you the entire way with like how my emotions have also gone around all of this, <laughs> um, and and sort of my understanding of the situation. I'm <clears throat> I'm probably somewhere between a hold and a buy on this. I think um, I think the question really comes down to two things. One is how long is this commodity crunch going to last and how many commodities is it actually affecting? So certainly it'll affect lithium ion, but to what extent is it going to affect some of these other chemistries, you know, a little bit also? But then the other question just keeps coming down to like, when are the markets really going to be there for these technologies, right? And so they're there to some extent, and there are a couple of projects out there. Some of them are getting, you know, met with lithium ion technologies, some of them with others. Um, But really what we need to see for this to, for this kind of market to take off is for there to be a lot of opportunities and, you know, and whole manufacturing facilities built for some of these alternative techs, if that's really what it's going to take. Um, so that that I'm a little bit less sure is, is close close at hand, because I think we really need to figure out exactly how we're going to just, you know, make the the market incentives work for these technologies and make sure that we're actually, you know, converting to renewables at a pace that's quick enough that you're going to create enough opportunities for them to really make money. Yeah. I should say, though, it is both a commodity price issue and a supply chain issue. Like the supply chain crunch that is plaguing various industries is particularly strong in in lithium-ion battery world as well. So it's it's like the combination of both. There is a bottleneck in the supply chain and commodity prices are like way higher than they've ever been. And I would, but I would think that some of those bottlenecks would still hinder other uh, companies with, with different chemistries or storage tech. Not, ha- not having specific expertise in a lot of the other chemistry or technologies, you know, there are a lot of technologies that I haven't followed for years. I'm going to put a a hold on this one. I think you made a really compelling case. Um, But I think there are a lot of, even when lithium ion batteries were a lot more expensive, there were still technologies that couldn't compete, you know, vanadium flow batteries and uh, compressed air storage. There were a lot of reasons why those companies weren't scaling in the first place. And I wonder how much of those cost or performance dynamics actually change. So those technologies may get a second look, but uh, I think that you know they need to stand on their own absent of these uh, commodity price spikes. All right. We're, we're done being purely bullish. Let's talk about hold, the places where we think a technology is hyped just right. Uh, we'll go, we'll switch the order. Steven, you, you go first. What's your hold? Well, this feeds it directly into your comments on lithium ion batteries and, you know, what other storage technologies are going to win out. And I am a hold on battery recycling. We have for many years been focused on battery recycling. I mean, uh, recycling solar panels, um, uh, the components of wind turbines and uh, and batteries. And there are a couple different ways that we recycle batteries. There's pyrometallurgy. There's actually burning them and taking the the um, taking the residue after that burning process. And there's hydrometallurgy um, using chemistry to reclaim materials after batteries are shredded. And these processes have historically been fairly expensive and time consuming and you don't capture all the material inside the batteries, but there are a ton of new companies, uh, some many American companies actually that are deploying new processes 
borrowing from some of these existing processes uh, to reclaim more materials inside lithium-ion batteries. And so there have been, um, you know, there's, there's been hundreds of millions of dollars raised by these companies in the last couple of years. And so I think that the technologies that they're playing with are interesting on their own. And we have seen, you know, some veterans coming out of Tesla who are starting, founding a couple of these companies. Um, but beyond the technology itself, I think there's some really important factors here that are playing into the investor interest and the need for more battery recycling. And historically, it's been an environmental question, a very necessary environmental question. But now, with commodity prices going through the roof, with continued supply constraints because of Russia's invasion in Ukraine, um, uh, you have this national security imperative. And so a lot of these companies are thinking about how do you create an American supply chain for metals and, and minerals that go into batteries. And I think now you have a really clear economic, national security, and environmental case for battery recycling. So there's a lot of activity right now, and it's pretty compelling. And uh, the market forces are definitely in favor of this push for more battery recycling. Lara, battery recycling? Uh, Steve, and I am 100% with you on battery recycling as a whole. I think this has sort of been the kind of the kind of yeah, maybe later sort of you know relegated to how we think about this compared to all the other things that we need to do around getting batteries to be more relevant. And um, and I think honestly, it's just it's coming up in importance and in people's minds for all the reasons that you mentioned. In addition to the humanitarian consequences of you know actually getting some of the materials that we need for batteries. So um, so I'm really with you. I think people are becoming more and more conscious about the environmental consequences, about all of the, the supply chain impacts of the things that we're doing for climate tech and for a lot of other reasons, in addition to the economic pressures pushing in the right direction. So this is a great hold. I would love to disagree with you guys, but I can't. Uh, so <laughs> I'm going to skip ahead of this one because I agree. Uh, I mean, actually, I, I don't know. I, it's hard to measure the level of hype here. I would, I would consider being a buy on better recycling Fair and enough. actually being a little more bullish than you, but... Let's just let's yeah. just all agree we think it's interesting. Can I give a little shout out to Julian Spector, who's been writing about this a bunch at Canary? I think actually this week timed up with they're doing a whole recycling series on renewables and batteries. And he and I had a long conversation about this and it was really fresh on my mind. And he walked me through all the investments and the different technologies. So I think that there's a there's a major there there. Mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com slash events, or click the link in the show notes. My hold, uh, 
I, is one that when we put out a call on Twitter, we got like strong, unsurprisingly, strong opinions ranging from extreme buy to extreme sell. So I figured we had to talk about it. So my hold is hydrogen. Uh, the this one, I, I think, depending on where you are, you could say it's extremely hyped, predominantly in Europe, less so in North America, though it's getting there. Um, but I also think that that hype is probably worth it. Um, you know, hydrogen, the problem with hydrogen in my mind is that in theory it can do everything. And so people have sort of decided to apply it to everything. So I'm, I would be a very much a sell if we're talking about like hydrogen for passenger vehicles. Um, but in the sectors where, first of all, we already use hydrogen, things like ammonia and chemicals production, uh, and then potentially in a few other really difficult to abate industrial sectors, uh, including to some extent in the power sector, I think hydrogen is going to play a significant role in decarbonization. I also think that it is going to be cheaper, clean hydrogen, zero C hydrogen is going to be cheaper sooner than people generally appreciate. And as a result, it's going to look more competitive with natural gas sooner. And we're going to discover that we can move faster, uh, than generally people are thinking. So I, I would make it a buy, except that it is super hyped. So I'm holding clean hydrogen. Laura, I know, you, I think you were considering this one as a sell. So yeah. tell, me, tell me why I'm wrong. Well, no, I mean, I think I think everything that you said is actually really spot on. I think the thing that, that sort of tips me into selling territory, it's a couple of things. One is that I think it is pretty hyped. Um, and I think and I think you're right that there's going to be a little bit of a reckoning around what exactly are the markets where hydrogen really does make sense. And I think the ones that you mentioned are spot on. I think we're all sort of in agreement that passenger vehicle transportation is probably not in the offing for, for hydrogen. Um, but there's one other point to add to the mix here, which is that the Environmental Defense Fund put out a paper in February that looks at the direct greenhouse gas impacts of hydrogen and it was not pretty. Um, it basically is suggesting that, in fact, the global warming potential of hydrogen itself might be a lot higher than we have thought. Um, and if that's true, then in particular, hydrogen leakage is going to be a massive problem. And that made me really sad because one of the things that in my pipe dream of a future world um, we would do is actually reuse all of our natural gas infrastructure for hydrogen. So that, you know, that's such a nice solution, right? Because then you you have a use for a whole bunch of otherwise stranded assets and with some coatings to make the steel more hydrogen resistant, um, you could have a pretty strongly clean hydrogen-based future. And that's looking like it might be less of a possibility now. Um, but I'll admit that all these all these things, there's still a lot of work to be done around this. And also this is, you know, the the use of gas infrastructure as kind of a, a way to transport hydrogen is also far in the future. So these may not be super relevant in the near term. I want to put a a placeholder on that topic. We're going to talk about that more at some future episode. I have strong opinions about those two studies that come out, one from the UK government, one from EDF, talking mm -hmm. about this hydrogen leakage issue. I think they're I think it's really misleading, actually, how they're presenting it. They're using five-year, the, the EDF one in particular, they're using mm -hmm. five-year global warming potential versus the 100-year standard. Hydrogen's a very short-lived gas. Even in a worst-case scenario, like worst-case leakage, 10% hydrogen leakage is crazy. Nobody expects that to happen. Even then, over the course of 100 years, hydrogen is like an 80% reduction in in greenhouse gases. Uh, and again, it's clean when you burn it, so you're only talking about the upstream emissions uh, that's in a worst case scenario. It's in, in a realistic scenario where we do for hydrogen what we do for 
you know, sort of best in class natural gas today and we monitor it and, and, uh, mitigate leakage, it's like dramatically better. So I, there's a bunch of things about it that I have like find concerning about the way that those studies are being presented because it's not apples to apples. Um, with that said, I do think that like they, they're raising a good point, which is, uh, we need to, we need to mitigate leakage as we build out hydrogen infrastructure. And it probably does make some cases around like how we should build that infrastructure, how distributed it should be and stuff like that. But right. I, I worry that, um, there's going to be some scary headlines that if you actually read the studies are not as scary as the headlines make them out to be. That's fair. Although I do think we need to dramatically reduce the uncertainties around leakage rates because the thing is they might be even worse than we think they are in the natural gas world. And if we start applying that within hydrogen too, this is it's not great. Got to get a handle on leakage, I think. Yeah, agreed there. Stephen, reactions on hydrogen? I'm a hold. I think that there's a lot of potential to decarbonize my partially my partially hydrogenated soybean oil for my buttered popcorn. <laughs> Joking. Uh, no, I think that there's there are high value applications for fertilizer production, uh, industrial chemicals, and clearly we need uh, green hydrogen or lower carbon lower carbon hydrogen to decarbonize those spaces. Obviously, definitely a sell for downstream applications. So I'm mostly in agreement with both of you. All right, moving along quickly here. Final hold, Lara, what is yours? My hold is vehicle to grid, although I'm actually cheating because the reason I'm saying that is because I'm also a hold on fleet electrification, which I think is going gangbusters. And um, part of, I think, what we're seeing is even more economic incentive to electrify fleets given the cost of gas. And this is hitting companies, you know, to an even greater degree in some cases than it's hitting consumer pocketbooks. Um, and I think if you electrify fleets, that's really the sweet spot for vehicle to grid applications. You start to see some actual real repositories of um, of grid resources around both managed charging and potentially even kind of serving as a battery of sorts. So I'm a hold on V to G. Uh, Steven, V to G. Uh, yeah, someone on Twitter said like they're a sell for DERs and a, and a buy for DERs. And uh, I think I put uh, V to G right in there. Like the, the the potential is enormous. The potential has yet to be realized and I think it will be some time. Uh, but of course the potential is fast and I believe in it. And a lot of others who uh, will integrate and with electric vehicle charge and believe in it. So I'm I'm a hold. I'm a sell. I, I, I'm not a buyer right. on, on vehicle to grid. Now I am, I mean, I'm all for fleet electrification. I'm bullish there. I'm all for managed charging, bullish there. I'm actually bullish on V to H using your vehicle to power your home. I think what the Ford is doing with the F-150 um, and you being able to use that as, as backup power for your home, super clever. I do not think we will ever see vehicles discharging into the grid at scale. I, I think the economics don't support it to be, you know, valuable enough uh, to lose charge in your battery and your vehicle as a result of it. I think the sort of questions around the battery, warranty and degradation, I think all of that is just going to make it such that the juice is not worth the squeeze, generally speaking. And so we'll get lots of managed charging, some vehicles being used for reliability purposes and very little discharge into the grid. But Shell, where are you on Vita H2? Vehicles to hydrogen. Vehicles to hydrogen. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. You like use your battery in your car to power an electrolyzer. Oh God. Slam dunk, right? That's a terrible idea. Um, yeah, I've seen a couple things for like really, really localized hydrogen production, and that's not 
that's not the direction I would go in, I would say. Okay, uh, we're short on time, so I want to get to our cells real quick. Uh, okay, I guess it's my turn to go first on a cell. I'm an, it's too bad we don't have much time because this is the one that like the second you start talking about it, <laughs> you need to spend 10 hours talking about it. I'm a cell on the intersection of Web3 and carbon markets. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I got it. We got to do a whole episode on this yeah. <laughs> at another time. Yeah, you do. Oh, my goodness. Here's the short version of what I think is happening. I think that there's a bunch of folks looking at carbon markets and saying, we can use Web3, crypto, blockchain, whatever, um, to solve the problems of a lack of uh, transparency in the market, to solve the problem of sort of liquidity and price discovery in the market. Those are the terms that they use constantly when they talk about why do we need to use crypto to for carbon markets, for voluntary carbon markets. And I think that they are, and, and though it is possible that Web3 could be good, to help improve those things, I do not think those things are the problem in the voluntary carbon market. So I think that they're attacking a problem that that is not actually the challenge. The actual challenge is uh, a, a very limited supply of high quality carbon credits or carbon removals uh, and a huge supply of really low quality, really bad carbon credits or offsets. That is the actual problem, and Web3 is not really a solution to that. There are other solutions to that, uh, increasing the supply among them and better crediting and better verification and all that kind of stuff. I don't see how you need Web3 to do that. So relative to the current level of hype, I'm a seller. Anybody want to disagree with me? No. And when WeWorks, Adam Newman comes in and, and raises a bunch of money in this uh, in this space, it makes it even more of a sell to me. Yeah, I mean, I think despite Matt Damon telling us all to to get into this market, I'm, I mean, I'm generally a sell on Web three. Let's be honest. I will say one thing is that if you're going to be making crypto, do it cleanly. And if you do it cleanly, that actually starts to become sort of interesting as a grid resource because there's a way to shift load into making crypto, and you can make money when there's really high amounts of renewables available. If that were the only way we ever made blockchain, then I would, you know support that. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'm sure I'm going to get some reactions to this one. So this will tee up a future episode where we get into a little more detail. Uh, Laura, what's your sell? My cell is actually carbon to value. I think, um, you know, we you already mentioned basically that there are some big challenges, obviously, in the carbon markets right now. And this has just always been a really tough space because the places where you have a lot of volume, like, you know, making cement, um, you have really low commodity prices. So it's hard to get a good price for the carbon that you're capturing. And in places where, you know, commodity prices are higher, where people might be willing to pay a little bit more for carbon, there's just not a lot of volume. Um, so I think, I think that's always been a challenge. I think what What's really going to drive some of the carbon markets in the near term are a lot of the companies that are actually interested in buying credits. And when they do that, they want to see, I think they're increasingly going to want to see some level of permanence and clarity around what it is they're actually getting. Um, so I'm hoping that that's an arena that starts driving more towards things like sequestration um, rather than things like carbon to fuels, where you wind up actually getting a lot of carbon at the end of the life cycle anyway. I would say I'm a hold on this one. I think those are all good points. I think I think there will be demand for carbon negative products. Now, mm -hmm. you, you're making a, a fair point that like the high value applications are not the big carbon sinks. So if it's like buy, sell, hold on, will this 
result in the sequestration of 10 gigatons of CO2 via products, I would also sell. Do I think, though, that there is going to be sort of a, a new market emerging for carbon negative products and materials? I, th- I think so. So uh, so there, I guess I would put myself as a hold, though I think you're, the points, but I think the points you're making are fair. All right. Final one, Stephen, what is your sell? My sell is renewable natural gas. Not because I think that renewable natural gas isn't a viable alternative for decarbonizing bits of the natural gas system, but because we don't have enough of it. And if you actually look at a lot of the studies that have come out showing how much um, well, let me just talk about what renewable natural gas is. It, renewable natural gas is like pipe qu- pipeline quality gas that can be interchanged with conventional fossil gas, and it's created by um, decomposing organic matter and from wastewater or agricultural waste or food waste. And so um, it is very much a viable technology, but pretty much every state study and government study shows that it can only be, you know, that you were looking at between five and 20% of the total gas supply. That's the amount of renewable gas that we could supply. And the natural gas industry or the fossil gas industry is saying, uh, don't worry about electrification. They're really worried about this movement toward electrification. And they're, they're, they're pumping up renewable natural gas as an alternative. SoCal Gas, in particular, is saying um, is pushing back on electrification or or bans on gas connections in California, and saying we're going to have the renewable gas to decarbonize the system. And the reality is that we just don't have enough of it. So I am a sell on renewable natural gas. All right, Stephen is a sell on renewable natural gas topic again for another time, uh, but I want to spend some time on a lightning round. We solicited a bunch, we asked Twitter, uh, as one does, uh, what things are overhyped, underhyped, or or just right in in climate tech. So we have a bunch of these. We're going to do a lightning round where I'm just going to name something that somebody suggested on Twitter. Uh, You guys tell me buy, sell, or hold, but you don't get your your two minutes of explanation. I just want want your your reaction. so we're going to start with, uh, Lara, you said advanced nuclear, which is advanced nuclear fission. A yes. bunch of people said nuclear fusion. Buy, sell, hold on fusion. Hold. Mm. Steven, buy, sell, hold. Sell. Sell. Mm. I'm a hold. Uh, okay. Carbon accounting systems. So let's, let's say carbon <laughs> management software. <laughs> Steven, buy, sell, hold. I'm a hold. I think there's I think there's something there, even though uh, Shale, you you were like an expert on this back 15 years ago when everyone thought that carbon accounting was going to be a big thing. I, I do think that there's enough happening in the regulatory world and in the corporate world that it makes it a um, a real trend. So I'm a hold. Laura, I'm a hold too. But we got to get our act together. We got to start doing it better. That's all I got to say. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm also a hold. I mean, I, you know, I would be a sell on some of the valuations of some of the companies in that space, but uh, but it's going to happen. Every big company is going to have to do it one way or another. Okay. A uh, bunch of folks also suggested geothermal, so we're in, we're going to do buy sell hold on current level of hype around geothermal. Stephen, you go first. I'm a buy on geothermal. Um. The resource potential is enormous, and uh, I think the drilling technology is getting better. And uh, we know we know it's there. We know the resource is there, 
I'm I'm a buy. And I don't think it's actually getting that much hype outside of uh, the Twitter circles, by the way. So that's why I'm definitely a buy. I'm with Steven on this. I'm a buy. I think it's underhyped in particularly the real world. And I think we're going to see more places where it gets possible thanks to some of the new techs out there. I'm a hold because I think it's more hyped than you guys do. I, I agree that it's like this small community of enthusiasts, but I see what's what's happening in my mind in geothermal right now is what happened in nuclear a, a few years ago, where like a bunch of people who are kind of new to the space started looking at like, how do we decarbonize power? And they find this magical resource that is, you know, zero carbon and baseload and could be abundant. And so obviously the solution is, and it used to be nuclear and now it's geothermal, maybe it's geothermal and nuclear. And so it, as a result, has become very hyped. I'm all for it. I'm very bullish on nuclear I, or on geothermal rather. I just, uh, I'm, I'm a whole relative to the current level of hype that I see. Uh, okay. Another one that a bunch of folks suggested transmission, buy, sell, hold on transmission. That's a trickier one to think about. I'm a sell on transmission mm-hmm. because everybody is talking about it. It is, I mean, like we know how much more transmission we need to build but it's so damn hard in this country. Relative the the hype relative to the reality of building out transmission lines that they don't they don't match up, and I have to I unfortunately have to be a sell. Um, even though you know I generally support lots more transmission build out in this country, I think it's super difficult to get built. Thanks, Stephen. Spot on. I'm a I'm a hold. I think. If the technologies can start addressing some of the siting challenges head on and actually meaningfully making transmission lines smaller and easier to build and ultimately easier to site, it could get interesting, but I think it's going to be a slog. Mm, I don't, it's hard to measure the current level of hype around transmission. That's what I'm struggling with. (laughs) It's not really hype. I'm going to buy because (laughs) you said everybody's talking about, I don't think anybody's really talking about it, except for (laughs) when like some state rejects a new transmission line or something like that. We're going to need a ton more of it. Uh, It's really tough to build. I'll buy. Okay. Um, Two more and then we're done. Uh, E-micromobility. Buy, sell, hold. Lara, you go first. Sell. Sell. I think. I mean, man, this is one, this is a really tough one. I think, you know, a lot of hype, obviously, um, a couple years ago, the pandemic really sort of made things real rough for those companies. Um, man, I don't know. I guess there's really not a lot of hype right now, but I still think that it's just, I don't know, we're not in a place to see that recover as quickly as we might hope. Steven? Are we talking about scooters and could be talking about scooters? E-bikes. Could be talking about e-bikes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm a hold. I, I mean, sadly, it, people went to their automobiles in pretty big numbers during COVID, and they haven't gotten out of their automobiles yet. And so, uh, clearly, a lot of people are using e-micro mobility solutions, but a lot of people are going to their cars, and I haven't seen an enormous impact. But the I mean, people love them. They're great options. Uh, and they're certainly an important mix in transit uh, and mobility options. So I'm a hold. I'm a buy. And it might just be because I live in mm-hmm. Berkeley and e-bikes have like taken over Berkeley, but uh, they're great. And I think some people are starting to use them to replace car trips. I think the, sh- the model of shared scooters that was the thing that was really hyped a few years ago, I, mean, I wouldn't necessarily be a buy on that today. You see a lot less of that, but I think ownership of of e-bikes, e-scooters, stuff like that is starting to pick up here. In some places in Europe, it's huge already. So I, I think that uh, I think it's coming back, e-micromobility. Hmm. Okay, and the final one, um, 
suggested also by a bunch of people. And as you said, Stephen, somebody suggested it's both overhyped and underhyped. DERs and demand flexibility. Relative to the current level of hype, where would you where would you vote? I don't know. Where where are we on the hype cycle with DERs? I mean, this we've gone up and down and up and down. I don't know where exactly we are. Um I would I'm a hold. I'm you know, right in the middle. I mean, obviously this is where the world is headed because of cost, consumer demand, regulation, environmental reasons, and utilities do see some benefit in it. So, I mean, I don't know how fast it's going to move relative to where people thought we would 10 years ago, but absolutely that that's the direction we're headed in. So um, a distributed system is inevitable. How distributed it is, I don't think anybody knows, but I'm definitely a hold. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty with Steven. I think I'm between a hold and a buy. I work a lot in this area, and I think everything he said is totally spot on, and particularly that question about how fast, I think, is the biggest question. Otherwise, I'd be more in the buy territory. I agree. It's kind of tough to figure out where we are in the hype cycle on DERs. I sort of think we're past, past the big hype, the original big hype, but it's always remained at a reasonably high level of hype despite all the challenges. So I think I'm with you guys. I'm a, I'm a hold here. Okay. We've gotten through everything that I wanted to get through, albeit very quickly. Uh, lots of lots of threads we need to tug on in future episodes, but this was fun. Uh, thank yes. you, Stephen. It was great to have you back. Thank you. The Web three one. We got to hang on that a little bit longer. Yeah, we got to talk. <laughs> I, I have like a bunch of yeah. We got to come back to Web three and carbon. I got to talk more about this hydrogen leakage hydrogen, stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We got to spend more time on geothermal and carbon accounting. A bunch of these areas. Um, but this was a good. Uh, teaser anyway. So Laura, thank you again. Great to have you back and to actually be able to talk to you instead of just listen to you. This was super fun. Thanks guys. Thank you. This was so much fun. Laura Pierpoint is the director of climate at Actuate, a nonprofit that is focused on accelerating climate solutions. Stephen Lacey is the host of our sister podcast, The Carbon Copy and the executive producer of Catalyst. Okay, Uh, I suspect we'll have some reactions to this one, so we welcome them as always. Uh, Let us know what you think. Send us a note on Twitter at at CatalystPod or directly to me or Steven or uh, Laura, who's more on LinkedIn than a Twitter person. Laura, get on Twitter. Uh, If you like the show today, as always, go over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review. This show is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. You can head over to canarymedia.com for links and more info on today's topics. And as always, Postscript is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors. They would buy on advanced energy, food and agriculture, transportation and logistics, advanced materials, manufacturing, and advanced computing. Big buyers over there at Prelude Ventures. Uh, This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf, mixing by Greg Vilfrank and Sean Marquand, theme song by Sean Marquand. Our managing producer is Cecily Meza-Martinez. I'm Shell Khan, and this is Catalyst.